there. Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 273, and it is the last episode for like eh, probably three weeks this time. Going to have a little bit more of a span. So I woke up early this morning. You can hear my voice. Got some allergy action going on. Uh, So I'll probably kind of have that like raspy cool voice that I always wish that I had, but I don't really have. But uh, anyway, so I woke up early and I'm like, I'm going to get this podcast in because by 10 o'clock tonight, I am on a plane flying over the North Pole. Yes, that's how we get to the UK nowadays. We fly over the North Pole uh, and I'll be going to the UK. I'll be over there for uh, about three weeks-ish, which means I won't do a podcast till the first week of June again. So I wanted to get up extra early, get this thing in the can, get it out into the real world, though some of you, by the time you see this, I will either, or you listen to it, I will probably be uh, somewhere in downtown London hanging out. I don't know. We're going to find out. So... That's kind of the plan. So, getting this thing put together, I don't know if it's going to be just, like, like short, sweet. I don't know if it's going to be long and messy. I'm not really sure. We're going to see where it kind of goes a little bit. But I know what my focus is this morning. And I hope that, uh, and what I kind of share with you a little bit in this podcast this week, uh, is an encouragement, actually, to being an everyday missionary because it would be hopeful. And it would be hopeful in the sense of saying, hey, uh, the clan isn't getting truly smaller in the biggest scope of things, but the clan of Jesus is getting bigger. I say clan because I'm going to London for four days and immediately up to Scotland for about two weeks. And so clan, you know what I mean? That's what we are. We're clans in Scotland. Going back to the Boswell homeland, because it was Ransom Boswell that immigrated from Scotland to the United States, and hence the Boswells are here. So uh, anyway, I'm getting sidetracked now. So here is the thing. I've been recently hearing a lot of um, speak on a topic or a word, and every time I hear it, I'll be honest, I get a little cringy, and I get cringy for more than one reason, right? So I get cringy in part because I think it is a little bit of an elitist word that gets used. I get cringy because I'm not sure any human should be allowed to use this word in some ways, and I get cringy because it doesn't even seem to fit the full biblical pattern for me. Now, it may fit kind of a niche within a pattern that we're going to talk about. I'll kind of get into that in a minute. Um, But I think it overlooks some other really important things, of which those important things give me a great deal of hope and optimism and encouragement to keep doing this thing of living out faith in Jesus in the real world, all right? So you're like, what's the word? What's the word that bugs Matt? Okay, the word is the word remnant, all right? Remnant is the word. And uh, like I said, lately I've been hearing groups talking about, like, there was a conference recently and it was all about being a remnant. And it was kind of like, we're the remnant left on earth, right? And I've heard other times, there's like Remnant Church, which was uh, Gwen Shamblin, the the girl with the big hair that uh, wanted to encourage everybody to lose weight in Jesus' mighty name, her. Uh, her church is called Remnant Church, right? And uh, throughout the years, I've heard different groups kind of talk about this. And what they're kind of saying in that is, hey, we're it, all right? So uh, God has always left a remnant. The remnant is always really small. And we have the Dakota ring. We have cracked the truth. We are the only ones in real relationship to God. And that's, we are a remnant. What's weird for me as I go, that word remnant isn't too far off from the word cult when a group says they're the only remnant or they are a remnant. I'm like, well, that's what cults say. We're the only ones that figured it out. We're the only group. We're the exclusive chosen ones and everybody else is just out of luck. Too bad, right? So I get pretty cringed out and worried about that word remnant for all kinds of reasons. And I think this is what it comes down to for me. We do see the word remnant 
in the Bible, mostly in the Old Testament, just a smattering of times, I think like maybe four times in the New Testament. And every time in the New Testament, it's quoting the Old Testament references to a remnant or has this idea of a remnant from the ideas that were in the Old Testament about a remnant. So here, let me start kind of with that. So there are certainly times in Israel's rebellion where, you know, they're following other gods and they're doing wonky stuff and they're not really putting the God of Israel first and God will roll in and say, you know what, I'm going to punish Israel for this. But in the midst of that, there is still a remnant of faithful Israelites in the nation. All right. Now, here's what's important about that. <clears throat> all Israel, and I've said this before on the podcast, and I know this kind of throws people off kilter a little bit, but all Israel was elect by God. All Israel was God's chosen people. Therefore, when God punishes Israel, it's not like he's sending them to hell. He's punishing his own kids. All right. This is his people. He has said, we are in a covenant together. The first covenant made with Abraham makes you my kids exclusively, no matter what you do. The second covenant with Moses had to do with relationship. And when they would break the Mosaic relational code, God would respond with discipline on his own people. So all of that judgment you see in the Old Testament doesn't necessarily need to imply that, oh, and therefore they all died and went to hell because A, there's not really hell in the Old Testament as we understand it. Um, and even B, what little echoes we do have, like the Valley of Hinnom and things like that, like for them, notions of destruction or, or, or you know, somehow like, like death related to sin was not as much metaphysical as physical, right? Like you cease to exist on the planet, you die. Like that's the ultimate judgment of God is you die, which is why the ultimate judgment for violating certain laws is execution in the Old Testament and violations against God was just that generation died or that group of people died or whatever it is. And so you see that in numbers, you see that track out throughout Israel, especially in the prophets uh, getting pulled off to Babylonian exile or you know even before that Assyrian exile. All of that was just God saying, you know what, your life as you know it ends in this life and it either becomes more miserable and you're not thriving or you literally die. But then in that space, there was always then a remnant of people that were faithful to God in relationship with God and weren't going off the rails and doing crazy stuff, right? So God would reference a remnant versus the rest of the population as that faithful group. So then when you get into the New Testament, you see some of the writers, uh, like in the book of Acts, you see Paul do it too, kind of refer to this remnant idea, not that we're supposed to grab onto it and say, there's always still remnants today, right? Like like that that would be the idea because the remnant concept was intentional for Israel as a nation was related to, again, just a pocket of people that was staying faithful to the Mosaic code and the covenant of God. Even though the whole nation was under the Abrahamic covenant, they were staying faithful to the Mosaic covenant, right? That's kind of the idea of what the remnant was. I fast forward that into the New Testament and say the the danger for us in that is A, the remnant language, we're not under Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants, right? So we're not functioning in that space. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is um, it seems that the remnant language was something that divine voice authorized. In other words, it's the divine voice that says that's the remnant or there is a remnant or here is my remnant. What you don't have is human beings deciding, hey, we're remnants too. We're the remnant. 
because we think we're faithful enough to be the remnant. Like as soon as human beings are discerning they're the remnancy, I don't know if that's a word, but if so, cool. If not, I just made it up. But when human beings decide their group is the remnancy or the remnant, um, I'm not sure they're authorized to give that labeling to themselves, right? Because then to me, I go, you're holding an authority. You are having or claiming a level of discernment that is beyond your pay grade. Like you're not allowed to do that, right? Um, because we don't we don't know we we know less than half of everything, right? And as you know, man, I'm a big believer in the fact that we all know less than half of everything. And there's a lot of things we think we're getting right that we're getting wrong. And there's some things that we think are wrong that may in fact be right because God has limited our ability to have knowledge. Paul says, hey, we see dimly in the mirror. Like he does us a favor. He's like, right now, what we see is dim. All right. So we should be good about that. We should understand that kind of our our ability to comprehend the almighty, our ability to really kind of plumb the depths of the scriptures, our ability to truly commune with the Holy Spirit in such a way that he teaches us everything. There's a lot of limitations in all of that. Just a ton of limitations. And that's okay because that should keep us humble. That's why I'm always surprised when people get really proud in the certain kind of faith traditions that they hold or proud in the theological traditions they hold. Like, hey, again, we we know all all mysteries. We understand this better than everybody else. I'm like, but I think God built us to be dim-witted a bit, you know, like ever since the fall, because what was, what was really at the center of that decision and the story of the fall was they wanted to shift gears from trusting God to being all knowledgeable like God, right? So, so that was, at least for me, the basic architecture there was God said, all right, I want you to trust me. And they go, eh, we could trust you, but we'd rather have all knowledge like you. And so we're going to go ahead and take the step to be knowable or knowledgeable rather more than uh, kind of de- dependent on you. And what's the result? Well, now they know and it's bad. And so now they're going to think they know, but they don't really know because now their knowledge is going to be skewed. And that knowledge skew is still true for all of us, which is why I always say, hey, this is why you have Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopalians and Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and Coptic and, you know, I mean, just, you know, uh, Ethiopian. Like, you know, like there's pretty massive different variations of Christianity out there because we're all looking at the same book. We're all looking at the same Jesus. We're all trying to figure out the same God. We're all kind of laced with the same spirit and we all disagree on a lot of this stuff because we see dimly, right? And it's okay. And I'm going to just say, and it's okay that we see dimly because like that's that's the circumstance, which is why then what we really should measure it by is not who's seeing less dimly, but who actually seems to be more like Jesus. Like that's the real measuring rod. More than the data, right? It, it, it should be kind of the disposition that comes out in different Christian groups and sects and things of that nature and individuals where we go, hey, we see the character of Christ here, right? And and that's what counts. We see the fruit of the Spirit here, and that's what really counts because that's kind of the evidence of the life of God laid in the soul of people and playing itself out in the real world. So, um, you know, that's always kind of the thing I think about in this. And thus, going back to the remnant idea, this this notion that, again, we're, we're the superior or we're the elect ones because that's kind of what's getting said in the remnant language. We're the elect ones. Um, and we know we're the elect ones. So can we just call it out now and say, we know that we are, you know, and a lot of times that's driven by because we got the right information. We've finally been able to understand this book better than everybody in most of human history, except for the little vein that kind of, we are all connected to. And, and I go, man, I think that's, I think that's bad. And I think that's bad for a number of reasons. One, I think it kind of smacks of 
kind of a theological pride that is in there that just says, again, we know better than everybody else. I think that's part of the danger. I think another part of the danger is it then writes off a lot of other Christian expressions as being non-remnant or even non-Christian and not really saved and that whole game that gets played there. And I think that's a dangerous thing. I think it's a dangerous thing because ultimately too, um, it it creates in the people that that are not sure if they're a remnant insecurity and instability. Like, well, they say they're the remnant. I guess we're not the remnant. What does it mean to be a part of the remnant? What do I got to do to be a part of the remnant, right? And I think that's a risk. And I also think within the remnant idea, there is this, hey, because we've nailed it down, we don't need to explore anymore or question our own dogma or orthodoxy anymore. We've settled it. And, and so because it's settled... We just need to keep reinforcing a thing because it's so settled. And so, you know, they really anchor their dogma so tightly and usually very definitively. Like it's a, it's not like, Hey, three principles, you know, it's usually like 50 principles and it's so deeply particular that again, it becomes like, unless you believe these 77 points, you're not a part of the remnant. Right. Um, and so, you know, which I, I hear this language, I hear it in different quadrants, right? So I hear it out of certain kind of uh, fundamentalist Calvinist quadrants, but I also hear it out of some kind of Pentecostal third wave, uh, you know, kind of Hillsongy kind of groups at times or whatever else too. Um, and certainly some of the Pentecostals that are much more politically oriented, kind of Christian nationalism oriented, they love to use the remnant language a lot too. And all of it, I just go, man, the, the, there's a fine line again between remnant and cult when you start saying you've got it all figured out, right? Because as I've been advocating, I don't think we have it all figured out. And that's okay. Now, does that mean that I'm just kind of a relativist when it comes to the Bible and because you can't really get it, don't try to get it? No, we all seek to try to get it. And in that, here's again the thing I'm really committed to. In the seeking to get it, um, what should be the, the driver in that is wonder, curiosity, humility, uh, you know, a sense of I want to grow in these graces and fruit of the spirit like like that. Those kinds of things should be the motivator. What shouldn't I think be the motivator is I just want all of this intellectual information. I want theological knowledge so that I can have some kind of biblical debate or so that I can know that I'm most right. Like all of those things I think are really, really healthy, unhealthy Um because I don't think God gave us the book for that purpose. I don't think God gave us the faith for that purpose or the Holy Spirit, certainly not for that purpose. Jesus didn't come into the world for that purpose. He came into the world to transform a people, to be an actionable group that's bringing this upside down kingdom thing to bear on a very upside down world. So if anything, the world's upside down, the kingdom's right side up, but it comes into the world so strangely, it looks upside down, but it's trying to flip the world right side up by that which what we do, right? And so that is why then we exercise the things that we do that are definitively Christ-centric. In fact, one of these days I'm going to do a podcast. <laughs> this is going to be the most provocative thing I say all day. It's, it's going to be why I hope Christianity dies. Um, and actually, I think Christianity will die. So that's the more provocative thing. I think Christianity will die. And what you'll have left over is the way of Christ. Uh, you know, because Christianity is still kind of, we're, we're kind of bloated with some of our baggage of history, some of our baggage of getting into all the weeds of details of things that I don't think Jesus cares about so much. And so it, it's another kind of ism in the world in some ways. And I can't wait to see more and more as generations come and go, kind of peeling away the layers and getting to, or getting back to is the better word, um, getting back to the core of of what Christ really was doing in the world once it kind of gets deinstitutionalized and 
and again, because I shared in the last podcast on post-millennial, things are getting better. The church is going to get better too. Christians are going to get better at all of this stuff. And we're going to realize what really matters and what doesn't matter. I think we're going to coalesce and unify more than we're going to be so divided. We may see the inverse of denominationalism where it just fragmented into thousands of things. Maybe they re-coalesce into more kind of globalized, unionized kinds of things where there's more of a one-mindedness of the church in the world. Like that's kind of where I do think it's going, which I know is crazy, but I'm really excited about that. Um, and again, is the opposite of the remnant idea. So, right. So it's like acknowledging that Jesus is on the move and working in all sorts of cultures and all sorts of ways and all sorts of different quote Christian backgrounds. And he is healing the world as he's doing healing in his church. And we get to be a part of that. Which is why then I, I go, we, we don't want to get trapped into the language of we're the only group or we're the most right group. Or this little pocket over here, they've solved it all. And this is the most faithful way to be a Christian. Now, I think there may be many pockets out there, and that's the most faithful way for any given individual to be a Christian. And that's totally healthy to me. Like, if the best way for you to be a Christian is in a Baptist church, that's awesome. If the best way for you to be a Christian is in a non-denominational church, awesome. Lutheran, awesome. Catholic, awesome. You know, Methodist, awesome. You, you, you know, like the Brethren movement, you know? I mean, like, I'm just saying, there is this part where, uh, like, this faith of ours resonates more in some environments and less than in others. Like you, you put me in <clears throat> like a, <clears throat> a real Pentecostally church and, and I'm pro gifts for today, but I'm uncomfortable in that space. I'm just the whole time on edge. I feel pressure. Um, it's not a judgment against them. I'm just saying it's not, it's not in my conscience, uh, comfort level range. It's not how I sense God or whatever else. Uh, and so for me, I go, I don't flourish in that environment, but I know a lot of people that do, and I'm grateful that they do. Now, is there things in that group that I go like, I don't agree with? Sure. And guess what? There's things in my group that go, eh, I don't agree with. And they may be right because this is where I go back to the diversity of the church, the fact that nobody's got it all pinned down and thus nobody is the remnant. If anything, it's just the people of God in the world. That's what God is doing, Right. Now, I'm sure in that there are people amidst the people of God in the world, or at least people who think they're a part of the people of God in the world, who may not be the people of God in the world. Like they, they're, you know, their motives are X or Y or Z, whatever it is. And so they, they think they're a part, but they may not really be a part. But guess what? I don't get to make that decision. I never get to make that decision. I see nobody in the New Testament making that decision. Jesus can make that decision, but Paul never makes it. John never makes it. Peter never makes it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they don't make those decisions of who's in and who's out. They warn that, hey, some people can think they're in and they're out, but Nobody actually says, you guys are out. And here's why I know that you're out. Like outside of disbelievers, like they just don't believe, right? We see Paul the best saying, I'm concerned. I got to come back and see the gospel instilled in you. But he doesn't say you guys were never saved, right? So once again, I go, I think Jesus is on the move in a lot of different places and a lot of different ways throughout this thing that we call the church, throughout this thing that we call, and I think will dissolve called Christianity because it will give way to truly just living the way of Christ and some of that labeling and certainly some of the baggage and some of the unhealthiness that comes with organized religion will hopefully fade away and fall off over the course of time. I think we're only like, I don't know, halftime right now with the church in the world because there's a lot of baggage that has to fall off. There's a lot of institutionalism. There's a lot of love of money. There's a lot of love of power. There's a lot of abuse. There's a lot of bad things, which is in part why I stay in this tradition. I stay in the tradition because I, like probably you and many others, we see the toxic parts. We see the broken parts and we've got to be the change, man. We just have to be the change. We have to bring a different vision to bear because the world desperately needs to see a healthy expression of lives in Christ. And we get to do that, right? 
So that's all what is important in that. And thus, again, I go back to why I'm not a fan of the remnant language. Now, what that means, I'm going to pivot out of kind of saying remnant 75 times in this podcast. Um, What that does mean, though, is uh, I think um, there are a lot more people, and I'm going to use our vernacular, I think there's a lot more saved people than we really think. I really do think that. I've been teased before by people that are close to me. They're like, Matt, your way is wide and your door is broad, you know? And I go, yes, it is, which I know sounds very contrary to my favorite sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, right? So I'm going to explain that here in a second because I want to kind of touch base on that because I think it's really important because that's kind of the linchpin. I think part of what drives, I'm going to say it again, remnant uh, ideas is the way is narrow, right? That's that whole thing. Difficult is the way. It's a it's a tiny little door and a narrow little way and few will get through it. And so Matt, don't you get, Jesus told us almost nobody gets saved. Well, then we should all be nervous because <laughs> if only if you get saved and in the world where the largest, or like Christianity is the largest religion in the world, you know, and then we're we're in a culture where like the New Testament warns of greed pretty heavily, you know, and the love of money and all this stuff. Like, man, that really kind of shows you're not in kind of deal. And I'm like, we're in the wealthiest, richest nation in the world. We're all immersed in this. Cult. We should be very afraid that none of us in America are saved if that's the case. If it's this narrow, difficult way, and you have almost two billion, two almost two billion people on the planet that claim to be Christians, that seems like what are we going to do with all that? All right, so. Let me explain the Matthew passage and then take you to Revelation and then take you to my closing thoughts. All right. So we'll take the plane up and then we're going to land it and loop and all kinds of stuff. So anyway, so when it comes to that message in the Sermon on the Mount, where I'll read it to you here, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way that is hard, that's the one that leads to life and those who find it are few. So you go, well, okay, there you go, Matt. Wide destruction, narrow life, only the few find it. That must be the remnant. And they're all in the underground church in China right now. And the rest of us are doomed. Like, I don't know what we're going to be thinking about that. But see, I'm not sure, or at least I'm not sold, that what Jesus is saying there is like heaven and hell. I'm not sold on that. Here's why I'm not sold on that. There's a handful of reasons, but I'm going to try to keep it simple today. So uh, I see this as getting to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's rolling in and he's like, okay, I'm like a new Moses. This is a new Sinai presenting a new law based on kingdom principles. So under the old code, this is how we did things. But what he says there, even at the beginning in chapter five, he's like, but you got to understand the purpose of the law is to have fulfillment. And now what he's saying is he is that fulfillment. So the law is being fulfilled in his presence. Thus, we're not going to continue the laws it's been. We're going to have a new law, right? So that's why like in chapter five, 17 to 20, he's like, if anybody takes away from the law, they're least in the kingdom. Right. But then immediately he's going to start amending things that have been in the law. Right. Both kind of of extracurricular style and actual mosaic biblical style. He's going to kind of go after both and all of that. Right. But what he's doing is, again, he's pointing out the fact that, hey, with the arrival of me is the arrival of fulfillment of the law. There's no law left for us to need to fulfill because Jesus is that fulfillment, which is why in Galatians 3, Paul says, hey, Jesus, or the law was a tutor to take us to Christ. Once Christ shows up, we don't need the tutor anymore, which is why Paul seemed to be frankly, more anti-law than law, or he was more uh, anti all of the details of the law, and he loved the heart of the law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says that multiple times, so we kind of get that too, right? So Jesus rolls in, he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, okay, here's the attitudes you need to be. You need to be 
poor in spirit and you need to be mourning and meek and merciful and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and pure in heart and peacemaking and when persecuted, oh man, you put a smile on your face, right? And he has all that stuff and he says, you're salt and you're light. And then when it comes to broken relationships, you need to mend them. When it comes to your word, you need to keep it. When it comes to your enemies, you need to love them. You need to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, all those wonderful things. You want to give to the poor. You want to pray to God in a whole new way, wanting the kingdom to be on earth as it is in heaven. You want to fast, but don't let anybody know you're fasting because you're doing it because you want to see God move in the world. And then when it comes to the stuff of the world, don't worry about the stuff of the world. Don't worry about your money. Don't worry about your health. Don't worry what you're going to get tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all this stuff's going to be added to you. Now, when you do that, you're going to be tempted to judge, but don't judge lest you be judged. That's a bad thing. Worry about what's going on in you more than you're worrying about what's going on in somebody else. How do you get to that? You ask, you seek, you knock, because the bottom line is this. However you want others to treat you, you treat them. That is the whole law and prophets, right? So then he's saying, here's the spirit of everything we're now letting go of. We're still going to maintain the spirit of it. And after saying all of that, he says, so enter by the narrow gate. And the way I would understand this, because that's where it leads to, is he's like, everything I've told you is that narrow gate. Now, is he saying the way we get to heaven is doing the Sermon on the Mount? Well, if so, then it's work salvation. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the narrow way that he's talking about that few are actually going to choose is doing the Sermon on the Mount. Like he's just spent what we're going to call three chapters. There weren't chapters then, but he's just spent this whole thing laying out his vision for the world. And it's going to take tremendous self-sacrifice on the part of people to embrace that. And he knows many people will say, no way, too much, requires too much faith, requires too much sacrifice. I, I'm better at judging people at, than worrying about myself. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to turn the, I'm not, if somebody sues me, I'm not paying double. That's stupid, Jesus. That's totally stupid. Yeah, my friend and I, we had a fight, but I'm going to keep going to church and worshiping God and not reconcile the fight because they started it, whatever it was. They didn't understand me. We just got to beef, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, like everything that's in there, you know, the marital crises, the infidelity crises, the lust crises that he deals with. I don't want to address any of that, Jesus. Come on, man. Like he knows that's a narrow way, but that's the narrow way that leads to life. And I think what he's saying life here is he's talking about flourishing. He's talking about the betterment of the world. He's talking about how the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. The more we do the Sermon on the Mount, the more life comes because that is the road to life. It's hard. Many people say, I don't want to do it, but that's where transformation comes. Destruction is look out for yourself. Go your own way. Do your own thing. Don't turn the other cheek. Judge other people all you want. Yeah, have lust in your heart. Yeah, cheat on your spouse. Yeah, don't keep your word. Yeah, blow off the idea that persecution is to be done with joy. Instead, become the persecutor. Get a gun and make sure nobody can persecute your faith. That's the way to do it. Like, if you start thinking about this, that will lead to destruction because the fuel of the kingdom is in the words of Jesus. And when you don't follow the words of Jesus, there's no fuel for the kingdom in the world. Because the kingdom's a world thing, right? The kingdom changes and transforms the world. This message is the message of transformation. Only by doing it will you see life in the world. And if not, then you'll see destruction. And see, Jesus is saying this to a population that they understand life and death, physical, as God's blessing or judgment. So all throughout the Old Testament, again, go back to that thing at the beginning of the podcast, all throughout the Old Testament, if you follow me, you will have flourishing and you will live. If you don't follow me, you'll have decay and you will have death. That was always physical. Right? There was no talk of the afterlife as the penalty marker there. It was always physical in their world. Jesus is coming to Israel, the last generation, and saying, if you don't choose life, it's going to result in death. If you don't choose life, it will be your eternal destruction. Your city will burn, your temple will fall, your people will be slaughtered, and you will be scattered and no more. 
right? Things will end here if you don't embrace this message, my message as the new Moses, new Sinai, new law. Boom, right? So that is the wide and narrow way. It's choosing the Sermon on the Mount. It's choosing to live by or reject the words of Jesus to execute this message. So I'm not sold that that the context in all of that passage is about the gospel. I, I'm just not sold on that, right? So um, I, I don't see the, the, the where it leads to in that. And even what it comes out of in that is being, that's it, the, the idea of believing in Jesus or not believing in Jesus is the central purpose of the wide and narrow way. I think it's, the wide and narrow way is doing the Sermon on the Mount or not doing the Sermon on the Mount, right? That, that's kind of what's faced there. And then from that, he's like, hey, man, you're going to know a tree bats fruit. There's going to be some that think they're in, but they're not. They're, they think they're doing what Jesus wants them to do, but they're not because in their heart, maybe it's greed, maybe it's lust, maybe it's whatever, who knows what. And then he says, just build on my words, man. Build on a good foundation. You can do this. Make it happen. It can happen, right? Kind of thing. So, so that's the heart behind it. And so many will not choose to do the Sermon on the Mount. I see today, like I, I see lots of American Christians that are like, nope. Not doing that, not doing that, not doing that. I'm, I, the government wants to persecute me and I'll fight the government. Like Jesus said the opposite of that. Does it not say to fight the government when they persecute you? Literally says the opposite. Nope, doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't believe that. I'm going to do it anyway, right? Like that's kind of the mentality, you know? Or again, uh, you know, turning the other cheek. Not going to do that. Loving your enemies. Nope, my enemy's a jerk. I'm not going to do that. Like there's tons of Christians that just blow off the Sermon on the Mount. They're choosing the wide way all the time, man. And I go, that's the problem. It is the problem. We're choosing the wide way all the time. We need to choose the narrow way. Yes, that's true. But I think that's still the context. Are we going to do this radical, life-changing, world-flipping message or not? Right? But here's the good news. Actually, over the course of time, many have. See, I think in part when Jesus says this, he also knows that his culture will not do it, right? He knows his culture is going to choose the wide way. They're going to result in the destruction of their of their civilization in 70 AD. From 66 to 70 AD, it comes, it happens. So that period, the fall of Jerusalem, is very much the uh, eternal destruction methodology of Jesus. You're going to die. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be wiped out. The Valley of Hinnom again and Gehenna and all of that is related to those Old Testament ideas. This is what's going to happen to you, right? So you're going to come to an end, Israel, because you don't turn and embrace the kingdom, right? You're not going to embrace the, the, the messenger of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom, and the marching orders of the kingdom. You're not going to do any of those things. So it's going to come to a close, right? But, but the gospel then, the message of Jesus or whatever else, it does spill out into the Gentiles, and the Gentiles embrace the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And the the church begins to grow and to spread. And more and more people say, I'm going to choose the narrow way. I'm going to choose the narrow way. And they keep multiplying that vision of the narrow way. And Christianity, again, things, I'm using labels that I hope will spill away in time. But Christianity begins to grow and to spread. And lives begin to get changed. And the, the Roman Empire begins to change because these changed lives who are taking serious the Sermon on the Mount, who are really doing the hard work of the stuff. They're choosing the narrow way of the hard way, but it's multiplying exponentially, right, in the lives of people. So that's kind of the paradox here. It's a narrow and difficult way. Few find it, but those who find it can multiply it. And others, maybe only a few that buy it, but then they multiply it. And there may be only a few that buy that, but then they multiply it. And now you've got this hyper multiplier of expansion and growth and, 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 and beauty unlocking in the world because they're taking this whole thing seriously. And see, if I fast forward to the end of the story then, it, 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 what I see is it's not a few, right, that 
all could say, we found it. We were the remnant. We were always the remnant for thousands and thousands of years unfolding. There was a tiny band of us always figuring it out. We were the remnant. No, what we find is at the end of the, the New Testament, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, language, all standing before the throne and the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hand, and they were crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You can't even count the number. No one can count the number. Right, So it goes from narrow, difficult, few, to a number so large you can't fathom the number that we're dealing with, right? That is cool to me. And that then reminds me that the language of a remnant skews what God is really doing in the world. Yes, it started small, like a mustard seed grows into a great tree that the birds can can land in, right? Like, Like that's your vision. That's the vision we're supposed to have. And so in that, I think the other important part is to then remember as generations come and they're embracing some margin of the Sermon on the Mount, because I don't, I don't believe any generation embraces it fully. We're all, I don't believe any Christian embraces it fully. Like I honestly, you know, when people are like, oh, we, people don't believe the Bible. People don't trust the Bible. I'm like, people in the church don't believe and trust the Bible. Not all of it. We all have our things where we say, that's ah, too far. I'm not ready yet. I don't have the faith to do that. I'm too nervous to do that. That can't be, that's not commonsensical. Jesus couldn't have meant that. Like we, we all do that stuff. It's understandable, right? This is why I think there's a lot of grace given to those who are God's people. Because I, I, I think every one of God's people is just pocked full of error and truth, uh, sin and the desire to obey, uh, good days and bad days. Like that's just all there, which is why we're, we're rescued by grace, which is why earlier, like I said, I hope we don't have to uh, fulfill the Sermon on the Mount to be saved because nobody's going to do it. Um, and so uh, his grace is always sufficient to our weaknesses, but we're all kind of growing in that grace. And we're all hopefully wanting to strive to be more dependent and more usable and more humble in what we do and in that have a joy that is palpable and attractive and a life that seems so odd but interesting to people you know and that that would bring little by little transformations and wherever we're at and you continue to see the spread you continue to see this innumerable number added to all the time based on what we do Maybe that brings me to my closer then. Um, I said after kind of picking on Remnant, which is very tight with lots of details, and I go, "Mm, I don't think it's really tight with a lot of details. I actually think this whole thing that Jesus pioneered is is broader. Uh, I think it is in some ways harder to live the Sermon on the Mount than to have just a bunch of dogma code that we say this is the decider of people that are in or out. but but in that too, I actually go, I think the core of what our faith is, is relatively simple. Uh, and, and that's what I would advocate. So I am a conservative, evangelical, Calvinish, as I've said before, uh, post-millennialist, right? That's, that's the little pond that Matt likes to swim in. Matt doesn't realize this pond is just a pocket of water in a much bigger ocean. Uh, and, and that's okay. Or, or if anything, maybe Christianity is like a cluster of grapes, you know, and my grape is kind of this particular variation over here. Um, and, and my grape would only thrive in certain parts of the country, much like a grape. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, I would not do well in the Bible belt. I would not survive very well in certain parts of the country as the kind of pastor I am with the kind of perspectives that I do have. I can do fine in the Pacific Northwest. I cannot do fine down in Louisiana. Right. And so, but, but that's, that's my, my grape. And then there's my 
friends down in Louisiana, and that's kind of their grape. And in Louisiana, you might have the Southern Baptists, and you, again, might have a Methodist, different kind of grape. And you're going to have the Arminians and the Calvinists, and it's a different kind of grape. And you're going to have people that believe in penal substitutionary atonement, and that's their grape. You're going to have others that believe in, like, I don't know, scapegoat theory, and that's their grape. And others that are Christus Victor, and that's their grape. And, you know, like, Eastern Orthodox, that's their grape. Catholic, that's their grape. You know, it's just, and that's okay, because it's all the cluster of Christ people as different grapes. I think that's good. That's okay. And so for me, I always go back to what do I think is the center hub of our shared orthodoxy under this banner called, at least for now, Christianity. And by the way, I'm not against Christianity. I just want to be clear about that. If you made it to this point in the podcast now, I'm not anti-Christian at all. I'm just saying I think it's it's loaded up and I hope that that kind of spills off because it didn't start off being called Christianity either. Jesus never called it Christianity. So I, in part, kind of think that way where I'm like, he called it the way. And I'm like, I kind of like that. I almost prefer the way. It's very Mandalorian. Um, though before the Mandalorian said it, Jesus said it. But we're on the way. We're doing the way. We're fulfilling the kingdom way, you know? And that's way cooler than me. Uh, Christianity was actually a pejorative uh, thrown to us at first, then we embraced it. Like Methodism was a pejorative, eventually embraced as the label. I hope some of these labels spill away. So what is then the central thing, the bundle, the ball, the hub of Christianity? Well, I bring it back to the revised Nicene Creed. I really go, hey, if this is what you as an individual, you as a community of faith hold to, to me, you're God's family. I don't get to discern whose hearts are in or out for real. I don't get to discern the the metaphysics of a soul in any of this. But I just go, hey, this to me is Christianity, which is why then some people say, Matt, your door is too broad and too wide. I'm like, right, because my version of Christianity, what I think is our dogma, if you will, I have it in front of me. It will take me maybe a minute or less to read, and I think that's it. I think that's that's the, that's our Christianity. All the other stuff, right? So all the different theories on atonement, all the different ideas on spiritual gifts, all the ideas on, you know, whatever versions of hell you want to pick, whatever versions of, you know, how you run a church, whatever versions of how you face scripture, you know, is it inerrant and inspired, or it's just inerrant, or it's just inspired, or, you know, all these different things we all have these debates about. Like, I've got tons of books behind me here having every kind of possible theological debate in the world over every kind of theological idea in the world. What is the nature of sin in the lives of people? What is the the age of the earth related to Genesis? I mean, all these debates. And I go, you know what? None of it makes Christianity Christianity. None of it does. Here's what makes Christianity Christianity. We believe, or maybe it makes the way the way. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one of being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended to the heavens and is seated to the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, little addition there eventually, and who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in the one holy, universal, apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and for the life of the world to come. Amen. That, my friends is the core of what Christ was doing in the world. That's how simple it is. And I go, 
Whoever believes that is, I guess, a part of the remnant, right? And therefore, the remnant isn't a remnant. It is a multiplicity too large to count. Boom. Gospel of John, uh, uh, Revelation of John, right? Too large to count. And that encourages me. I, I, I've never understood why we want to talk about how many people aren't really saved and think they're saved. I'm like, what a bummer. That's a downer. I'd, I'd rather talk about how, how many people are, are, are really saved and maybe they can grow in their relationship. Maybe they can learn in their relationship. Maybe they're kind of in a road of decay more than they're on a road of flourishing, which robs them and robs the people around them. It doesn't love them. It doesn't love their neighbor. It doesn't love their God. Let's talk about all of that. But I don't want to get into the whole, like, only a few of us are in, the rest of us are out and yay me. You know, like I'm like, no, man, if anything, let's all kind of inspire one another to completion. And in our different little clusters of grapes, in our different clans, whatever we want to call it, our tribes saying, hey, keep going after it over there. Like you're not my flavor and version, but you keep going after it over there. I love that, right? I know the temptations to not. It's like the disciples with Jesus. Jesus, look, they're doing stuff in your name, but they're not of us. Jesus like, whoa, man, if they're doing stuff in my name, then they're not against me right? And if they're not against me, you don't be against them either, right? They, they, may, they may not be your jam, but don't make a big stink about it, man, because anybody that's doing my stuff is doing my stuff. And I think that creed is the stuff. I think that creed, like that's the core of what it is. After hundreds of years of wrestling, all the churches throughout the known world at the time came together and said, we all agree on that. That is our faith, right? That's what I love about that creed. They said, that is after 400 years almost, we could all say this is what we agree on. How about after uh, 4,000 years, we can all look back and still say that. That's what I would hope. Because right now we're at 2,000. And at 2,000, I think it's important for us to say, you know what? If that's what we all agree on, we're solid with each other. We're good. All the other stuff is details, which is fine in your little group, but don't hold your details against another person's details. Your group details or ideologies against another group ideologies. Find joy, peace, comfort, worship in your ideologies, right? But be cautious at least and saying, and we're the remnant, and everybody else is wrong. Because that doesn't even be kingdom to me, right? That just really doesn't. And it misses out on the fact that Jesus is at work in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different contexts, because his, his, his community of faith is 31 flavors, man. It just is. It is the smorgasbord of beauty, of him revealing himself and the world through his people. And I think the more his people get that, I think the more we own that, we can celebrate what others are doing, man, the more effective we are going to be every day missionaries.